Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life. From Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today uh, for this episode is Mr. Vern Messer. He is a former member of the United States Army. He's retired, uh, spent 20 years as a private contractor overseas after getting out of the Army. Um, and without mudding it up and getting it all wrong, I'm going to turn it over to him. So, uh, Vern Messer, uh, I want to say, uh, again, thank you very much and welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here, Scott. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Vern. Um, so for those that are listening, um, that, uh, listen to podcasts and <clears throat> listen to this before, uh, we sometimes have technical glitches. So, <laughs> um, when I thank Vern again, it's, uh, he's been exemplary in, in his patience and, uh, working with me on this. So we're at it again. Vern, for the folks that are listening, um, you can do a much better job than I could. Uh, I could take detailed notes all day long about your, your history and your past and, and I, I wouldn't even come close to getting it all right. So can you tell everybody that's listening who you are, uh, what you did, uh, prior to your career as a contractor? Sure. Uh, my name is Vern Messer. Uh, I served, uh, 24 years in the U.S. Army and, uh, mostly in airborne units and, uh, retired from the Army and became a contractor, defense contractor and, uh, Ended up uh, doing about, like Scott said, uh, about 20 years in the Middle East in various locations, the Congo and other places. Uh, very challenging work and uh, enjoyed it very much. Had a lot of good experiences, did a lot of good things, helping the war fighters, and uh, uh, that's about it. <laughs> Well, um, that's, that's, uh, very, uh, humble of you. And speaking with you in the, uh, speaking of which, uh, speaking with you, uh, previously, uh, you, you are a very humble man. And, uh, but, uh, you, uh, for the folks that are listening, you spent 24 years in the Army. Now, were you commissioned or enlisted? Well, uh, I started off as enlisted and, uh, I was a parachute rigger for a few years, and then uh, changed MOSs into supply. Did that for several years. Uh, then I uh, applied for one officer. Uh, successfully was appointed uh, as a one officer and completed my time, uh, the 24 years, which was uh, about 11 follow-on years, and uh, as a one officer and retired. Wow. Okay. And as I recall from our previous conversation, now you were a wait, CWO three or four? A three. Okay. Right. So for the folks that are listening, uh, who may not understand that, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard enlisted, a lot of people have heard commissioned, uh, but maybe not a lot of people have heard of CW or chief warrant officer, or they've heard of it, but they don't really understand or know what that is. Can you, uh, uh, explain what that is and why it's significant in the military? Well, uh, the commissioned officer and the warrant officer are both classified as officers. Uh, the path uh, for commissioned officer is a uh, United States Army commission. The path for a warrant officer is called a warrant. And uh, but the status of both individuals are, are officers. Okay. Now, on the chief warrant officer side, so there's uh, basically, and, and correct me if I, if I get the, the terminology incorrect, but there's basically four four levels of warrant officer, CW01 or 01 through 4, correct? Uh, no, the, it's that's, that was changed back in the late 1980s. There are five grades of warrant officers now. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so is there... You know, we, we say that there's, uh, when people ask, you know, well, what's the equivalent or difference between enlisted and commissioned? And we, and we go through, you know, the, we start with the E1 through the E9. We do the same thing with O1 through, I want to say it's, uh, well, it's, it's more than seven if you go through second, third, and fourth star, stars. Uh, is there an, 
equivalent. So when I try to explain to people, you know, that like say an E5 would be in the officer corps would be the equivalent of say a captain. Um, is there something similar to that between what a chief one officer one through five is versus say an O3 or an O5 or an O6? Uh, not really. Uh, there used to be a loose correlation, uh, but that's kind of, uh, gone away. Uh, uh, you have real live officers, the commission officers, and you have the warrant officers. Uh, there is a dividing line. Uh, 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 warrant officers, uh, are appointed uh, to to perform. Uh, uh, there are two ba- two large classifications of one officers. You have the aviators who fly fixed wing and uh, rotary wing aircraft, and uh, you have the other one officers, which are the technical services. And these are specialized uh, specialties that. Uh, uh, MOSs, if you will, uh, in various disciplines, transportation, uh, maintenance, supply, uh, parachute rigor, things of that nature. Uh, probably, probably close to about three dozen, uh, warrant officer MOSs in that category. Okay. Uh, now if somebody, now it's been said, that uh, I heard this uh, a few times here recently, that the warrant officers are considered the subject matter experts in a particular area or skill or or field. Does that sound about right? That's correct. They are are, uh, subject matter experts in that discipline uh, where they hold their MOS. Okay. So now... They ride that um, fine line between uh, the, the the officer corps and the enlisted members. Now, it, would it be fair to say, or is it a common thing to see a say a warrant officer as say an adjutant or an assistant or some such term to say a colonel or a general or some other uh, flag officer? Well, there there are warrant officers uh, performing uh, command uh, assignments, uh, detachment commanders, uh, things of that nature, uh, and uh, they they can be uh, commissioned also, but they're still classified as warrant officers uh, as far as the army is concerned. Uh, but there are uh, specific assignments where a warrant officer may actually command a unit, a small detachment of uh, soldiers uh, that are doing a speci- specific uh, mission for the Army. Okay. So uh, now would a warrant officer also, would they, they would also, he or she would be in charge of their group or their department? Um, or their section that they're, I mean, they're like the lead person? Uh, that's correct. And uh, uh, they are in charge of uh, uh, of a specific section or part of a unit. Uh, for example, uh, you may have a platoon leader who may be a, uh, a first lieutenant or something like that. And uh, the warrant officer may be uh, running a supply support activity uh, where he's the accountable officer. Uh, uh, But his people are assigned under him, but they all belong to that lieutenant's platoon. Okay. In that particular unit. All right, so so the commissioned officer, the the lieutenant, the captain, the major, they're still the person that that's ultimately at the at the uh, top of the pyramid in in that structure. Um, and, and would it be fair for layman's terms to say that the chief warrant officer is is 
the person just just below that person or slightly to the right or left? Yeah, you're uh, the 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 uh, first lieutenant I referred to outranks the warrant officer, regardless if he's a CW three or a four or a two or or whatever. Okay, uh, that's the command uh, authority uh, set up. Right. Okay. So so that so that chain still works the same. Enlisted chief warrant officers, commissioned officers. Um, now we frequently hear and see it play out to some extent. Um, for example, it's not uncommon to see like an E eight or E nine. Um, you know, you know, they keep their bearing, but it's not uncommon to see them. You know, everybody kind of discerns they're really the one that's kind of in charge and knows what's going on. Uh, until you know, say with the lieutenant or the captain, until you get to like the ranks of majors and, and colonels, and 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 it used to be said that the chief warrant officer, especially at an O three and above, um, commanded an awful lot of respect amongst um, the the enlisted and even the the commission corps. Is that still the case? Uh, to yeah, to to a large degree, yes. Uh, 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 now the you know you uh when you're talking about the aviators you're in a different arena but on the on the specialist uh technical services side uh yes uh those one officers are the subject matter experts in their particular discipline they 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 had their uh army career experience in okay uh so now speaking of the army, so now you began your career in 1967. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, now, can we briefly uh, cover down uh, what um, skirmishes or regional conflicts or wars or anything you may have partaken in prior to you um, retiring? Well, uh, I had. Uh uh in the early part of my career i did my time uh i was a parachute rigger in those days and i got out and i served my time and got out and i came back in in 1971 i was still a parachute rigger i still had the same mos i was pri- i was classified as prior service hmm. came back in and uh 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 to be a parachute rigger, I thought I was going to be that, and they kept putting me in uh, <laughs> uh, supply uh, jobs, hmm. and that's how I got uh, interested in supply because I got to where I liked it. So I changed my MOS, and uh, I was uh, a repair parts uh, clerk, a unit supply sergeant. Uh, I had various jobs. I, I worked in the S four. I worked in SSAs. I worked in warehouses, uh, and I gained my experience. And then uh, I put in for one officer uh, successfully and uh, was appointed. That's where I served the rest of my career. Okay. So now you uh, you were uh, slaughtered or got your chief one officer uh, in what year? Uh, thinking back, that would have been, uh, 1980, 1982 or three. I can't remember exactly. It's starting to become foggy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Wow. Okay. Like around 1983. Okay. Uh, so now, so you said parachute, we're going to, did you also jump? You you were uh, you were airborne, or you had the uh, the wings? You got to be jump qualified to be a parachute rigger. Okay, all right. So you had that. Um, I'm assuming you enjoyed uh, jumping. Uh, mostly, yes. Uh, there was a couple couple times I had uh, I crashed and burned, but <laughs> overall it was pretty. It was uh, it, it it was pretty fun to do. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming things have come uh, improved uh, quite a bit over the years in terms of uh, equipment and safety and protocol and whatnot. 
Oh yeah, the the parachute, uh, the main jump parachute has been changed. Uh, it's a new uh, steerable version now. It'll uh, it kind of uh, carries you through the air the air uh, better, and you land a little bit softer than you used to. Uh, you can steer it much better than you could the old one, the T10. Uh, uh, but uh, and. The, the heavy drop uh, equipment has changed uh, a lot from what it was in the 60s. Hmm. Uh, the platforms have changed. Uh, the, the, heavy, the heavy drop methods have changed. The, the, uh, the heavy drop systems now can be steered to uh, locations on the ground with their parachutes have changed. Wow. <laughs> That's a big difference. Uh, yeah. Okay. So now, uh, and then you read, now you deployed, um, to the Middle East during Desert Storm in 1990, and that's about the time when you finished there. That's about, I want to say, what, the same year you got your first private contracting job? Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I, I came off of active duty. Uh, I hit the retired list in February of, uh, 1992. Okay. So, and, and there was that same year is when you got, when you began contracting, correct? Yeah, uh, I went on the job hunt, uh, and, uh, got my first contracting job at, at a, uh, at a base they had, uh, in Kuwait. Uh, they retained after the Gulf War, and uh, that was that's where my first job was at. Okay, uh, doing supply. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, now that was so. You were there during what we call the first Gulf War, and then you went back there after things "quote unquote" settled down. Um, but it had private, but the, some of it had privatized at that point. Is that correct? Yeah, what what the military did is they left a prepositioned uh, armored brigade set of equipment there in Kuwait, and that's what the project I was on. They were maintaining that equipment for rotational units to come in there, sign it out, go train jointly with the Kuwaitis with it, turn it back in, fix it, repair it. And the next unit would come in and draw it out and do the same thing. This okay. went on around. Okay. Now, um, and I don't remember the name. There, because you know a lot of the bases there in Kuwait, like in Iraq and other places, have closed down and and or been taken over by, you know, the uh, the national military or police services of those various countries. Uh, but at the time, now was that at uh, Bearing, and I can't remember the other one that was that big one that was uh, in, up there at the northern end of Kuwait near the border. Uh, there was a big one up there that that uh, had a lot of that stuff, but a lot of the training was was a little further um, west, I guess. Um, was it? Do you remember the base that it was at? Were you? You had a, a a couple categories there. You had the area. They used to train in when they would sign out that brigade set I referred to. They had a spe- specific area where they uh, trained that out there. But when uh, 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 when the war started, uh, the Iraq War started, uh, they became there became several more uh, sites out there where troops would. Uh, be posted before they went into uh, Iraq and other places. Right. Yeah. And at, at some point, there was a lot of them. Uh, and I'm guessing most of the bases that a lot of us knew uh, that came after you know after you started was probably uh, as a result of the second Gulf War. I mean, that's when when a lot more bases opened up. Is that correct? Yeah. They they were not so much bases. They were uh, forward operating sites, if you will. Okay. Uh, uh, now there's a couple of, uh, airfields out there that they used also. Al-Assad Air Base, uh, Al-Jabber, uh, 
uh, where uh, the units would also uh, position soldiers and Air Force personnel, so on and so forth. Okay. Yeah, and, and out there, uh, you don't have to drive too far out of uh, the uh, township areas to get to where you can, you know, properly soldier and train out there because you're basically surrounded by desert. It's not like here in the States where you got to drive several hours to get there or longer, correct? Well, uh, some, some of these sites are well over an hour's drive heading out there. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty, pretty far out there. Well, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah, yeah. Not the way the bird flies, but, yeah, the roads, yeah, yeah. Now that I think about it, you're right. Like uh, Beering, for example, was, uh, depending on where you were in Kuwait, yeah, you're right. <laughs> okay, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so so you began your career contracting in 92, um, and you spent, uh, what, 20, 20 plus years as, um, as a contractor, right? Yeah, I I uh I did my last project and retired for good. I think that would have been in 2012. Uh yeah, about 20 years. Yeah, wow. 20 Yeah. Okay. Uh so so your first so your first private contract was in Kuwait and you were doing supply for a private company at that time. Is that correct? That's right. And then uh that project uh terminated and uh uh, uh, a new company uh, won that contract and hired a lot of the same people. So I was there for about about eight years. Wow. Okay. So same contract, different company. Um, was was that under the auspices of um, uh, was it uh, Log Cap Twist or some? Was it known by something else at that time? No, uh, it was it was a different contract for a different purpose. LogCap was an uh, logistics augmentation uh, program uh, to support the deployment of uh, U.S. forces uh, into the Middle East. Original originally into the Middle East, uh, heavy units. Uh, multiple divisions. That's what LogCat was structured for. And if that was the Army version, and then the Air Force had their version of a LogCat hmm. uh, to to uh, sustain uh, Air Force operations in, in that theater. Okay. So the LogCat that a lot of us are familiar with uh, is pr- we're, when we talk about LogCat, we're probably referring to the Army version uh, during Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now you didn't spend all your time in Kuwait as a private contractor, or did you? Uh, no, uh, I was in. Uh, let me uh, reorganize here. Uh, <laughs> my memory's getting faded. Uh, I was in uh, uh, Saudi for a while. I was in. Uh, Uh, I was in Bahrain for a while, uh, small projects uh, on that one. Uh, uh, then I went to uh, I went to the Congo, did a training project there, tra- training the Congolese uh, army. Hmm. Came back to Kuwait, running a uh, working on a different project for about a year, year and a half. Uh, I, I did two years in Afghanistan. That's where I was when I finally retired. Hmm. Um, I was in Egypt. Uh, Some of the places I'm uh, I'm probably skipping over because it's a few years shaded. <laughs> but, uh, I totally get. It. I mean, that's a long history in the military and private contracting. I mean, uh, and there, I'm sure there's other countries, but I mean, just Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Congo, Afghanistan, Egypt. I mean, 
goodness. Um, so uh, this probably goes without saying, but I got to ask, uh, you enjoyed your time as a contractor. I sure did. Uh, I met a lot of uh, good people, uh, interesting, uh, saw a lot of interesting things go on. Uh, saw some unique problems, uh, challenges, and that's what makes it all interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> uh, uh, so in, in, your, in your time over there, in your travels, was there a country, I mean, to some extent we all enjoy our time wherever we go, but was there a country you enjoyed for whatever reason? Uh, the most? Uh, yeah, when I was in, when I was still in uniform, I, I did uh, three years in Jordan. I, I really enjoyed that assignment. Uh, I was a I was not a contractor at that time, but uh, uh, it kind of got me uh, interested in the Middle East. What was going on? Uh, I started following it at, more closely after that. And uh, as things shook out after I retired, that's where I came back to. So I, 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 uh, I, I, I was able to learn a lot about the Middle Eastern culture, the religion, the food. Uh, so uh, it, it was just an interesting place to work. Hmm. So would you call it um, a second home away from home? <laughs> Yeah, if you want to stretch it a little bit, you could say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, after a time, I mean, you, you're there so long, it kind of, I mean, it's not really home, but, uh, uh, so for the folks that are listening, was there, um, as a contractor, was there a typical day for you? And if so, what, what did it entail or what was it like? Well, a typical day is, uh, uh, you're you're supporting the warfighter and his mission. Rather, he's there on a training mission, or if you're in the, the, the in the theater in a combat uh, zone, uh, you're there to support that effort. And uh, every unit has different problems. Uh, if you're taking care of an armored unit, uh, supporting them, they're going to have different problems than a uh, and a mechanized infantry unit or a different uh, type of uh, a light infantry unit, uh, the aviators have their set of problems. And uh, they all have different uh, requirements that need uh, your attention to meet their needs. Hmm. So now is that, do those challenges and those needs and the, and the things you service, do they change or does the tempo change or what aspect changes during relative times of peace and times when we're at, in conflict, like the difference between when the first Gulf War, you know, so-called ended all, you know, and then during that lengthy time until the second Gulf War, uh, I mean, can you explain to folks, can you articulate for us uh, what what was the difference, if there was a difference? Well, the, the basic difference between the two wars was uh, the units coming into the Middle East uh, on that rotational pattern I mentioned before were training. They were training for, for war. And uh, they were there to train jointly with the Kuwaitis or whatever the host nation might be. To, to help them prepare uh, uh, to, to uh, defend themselves from an aggressor uh, in the region. Uh, then the second Gulf War, then of course it's, it's, uh, it had become a, a combat scenario. So, so everything you're doing uh, then in that environment uh, has life and death uh, real realization, right? So, okay, and that's the biggest difference between that the, that period of time. So it becomes so it it just becomes a little bit more serious uh, when it becomes a wartime scenario. Yeah, uh, 
when you're in a training scenario, uh, you're you're really uh, operating, paying attention to your scope of work, uh, uh, trying to follow the the the, the regulations. No, the, when the war breaks out, the sense of urgency is much higher, and you still have a scope of work, and you still have regulations, but you have to become creative in order, more, a little more creative uh, in order to sustain the uh, warfighter. Okay. Uh, you don't want to become a uh, a blocking point for what they need. <laughs> right. You don't want to be the person that people are complaining about uh, because they can't get what they need, right? <laughs> well, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things is what I'm saying. Okay. You, you can't always, uh, in that scenario, be a yes man. Uh, you have to learn how to say, uh, let me give you an answer, no, but I'll get back to you. Okay. Instead of saying yes and you find out later you got to change it, that's painful for the customer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, okay. So, so you, 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 you have to uh, adapt to what the situation is. Hmm. So with that said, and then a little bit to what I asked just uh, a little bit earlier, put them together, it, it, in that time as a contractor, uh, was there a country that you worked in that, uh, for reasons that you may or may not want to go into, um, if you can, that'd be great, that for whatever reason presented the, as best as you can recollect, the greatest challenge uh, for you to get your job done and why? Uh, probably it was in Afghanistan. I had, uh, I was the property manager for that project. But the project was not in one location. We had 19 sites in that country. Hmm. And uh, I had to maintain uh, asset visibility of all the government property and the contractor-owned property uh, on those uh, <clears throat> 19 sites. Hmm. And you have to come up with uh, <clears throat> fundamentals and procedures uh, to, to maintain uh, property accountability. And uh, at the same time, provide what's needed in order for the uh, your teammates to accomplish their mission. Okay. So now, were you uh, now when you say supply, supply and logistics frequently get tossed out synonymously. But from your perspective, are supply and logistics the same thing, or are they different creatures? Uh. Logistics is is a large uh, umbrella of three basic logistics disciplines, and uh, supply is one of them, transportation is one, and maintenance is the other. Hmm. Now, there's subcategories of logistics also. Below those three, uh, you have... uh, let me back up and say uh, maintenance should be in the top three. And then you get below maintenance, uh, you have uh, transportation, uh, you have uh, information technology, uh, computer networks, hmm. uh, food service, uh, personnel administration. Those are sub disciplines or subcategories of logistics but hmm. the top three are your maintenance your supply and your uh, transportation okay so does that go similarly uh, with with the war scenario uh, way of thinking like uh, say the the soldier where we frequently say bullets beans and bandages um, you know the the, the the key elements that you need to engage in a wartime scenario is that is that what those three things are I mean is that why they're set up the way they are? Well, yeah, the the warfighter has to be able to move, shoot, and communicate. Uh, of course, he has to eat, he has to drink water. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, so so the logistics system supports him and all of that. Uh, uh, 
and, and it's not just uh, beans, bullets, uh, and, and ammunition uh, or whatever. It's it's a multitude of other services and uh, items that are needed. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. No, I understand that. But I mean, but but the, the system that you basically outlined, you know, the the, the uh, you know maintenance and then the subcategories below that, transportation and the rest of it. That's that structure is set up based on experience in a hierarchical and tree type structure, based on the the needs of the military when they're engaged in a war scenario. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, that, like like your uh, for example, your transportation set is set up and uh, as lines of communication. Uh, of course, on the ground in the theater, you got your lines of communication or transportation on the ground there, uh, moving things to support the battle, to support the maneuver of the units. And then transportation into the theater from uh, from other depots and other bases supplying various uh, components, repair parts, food, bullets, ammunition, uh, missiles, uh, rations, clothing, boots. Uh, uh, Transportation carries all of that back to their origins in the United States. so, so uh, uh, maintenance is very, very important. Having the capability to fix equipment as far forward as possible, so it can return to the battle. And you got to have repair parts to do that. You got to have mechanics, and you got to have tools and test equipment. You got to have uh, lubricants. You got to have coolants. You got to have batteries. Uh, it's a it's a very complex, multi-layered system that supports a warfighter in the forward foxhole. Mm. And and these are these are all practical lessons learned over the decades um, that have been brought up, um, but most recently in the first and second Gulf War. Um, as people might recollect when they watch the news and, and, and there's a frequent refrain that, you know, geez, we can't get enough of it far enough forward fast enough. But I mean, but all through history, that was when, when, when the military is marching forward at, at, at breakneck speed, it's the job of people like you to make sure that they get everything they need when they need it as they need it. Correct. That's right. And what, what I always tried to do, even when I was on active duty, was keep my ear to the ground of what's going on in the division or whatever, what their training tempo was so I could anticipate requirements. If you have the ability to anticipate, uh, you have uh, reduced your reaction time to when something is needed. If you can have something coming on the pipeline before they actually ask for it, uh, uh, that is a great enabler for them to do their mission. And that comes with knowledge and intelligence of what, what they're doing either on the battlefield or on the training environment or whatever. If you have an advanced warning of what they're going to do, that helps you help them. Right. Well, and would you say experience also helps because, you know, this is the sort of thing you've done before. So it's kind of like, you know, they might just need this. That's right. Right. Okay. Uh, So uh, in – of the the countries you visited as a contractor, you stayed in – uh, what's the uh, what I'm looking for? Multiple um, versions of, uh, say, a house or an apartment, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to. Uh, but I mean, you had multiple multiple versions of accommodations. Um, can, can for the people that are listening, can can you uh, maybe you know 
tell us what was maybe the bare worst one you were ever in and what was the best you ever had? Well, uh, uh, the worst one was probably my last one. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was in uh, Afghanistan, uh, we started out there in uh, tents. <laughs> mm. And uh, about a year later, uh, we were able to move into uh, uh, containers uh, they had uh, procured uh, for living living units, and that became a lot better uh, living conditions for us. Wow. So as a contractor, you stayed in tents for a year. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I see a lot of people don't think that or don't think about it. Um, I mean, some of us have 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 had that uh, luxury, quote unquote, but uh, not for that length of time. As a contractor, typically that's what happens when you're uniform. So that's amazing. Okay. Uh, yeah, it just it depends on where you're at. Uh, the the accommodation runs the gamut. It does. Uh, in the '90s, I was living downtown in an apartment, so hmm. that was like uh, going to work. Uh, in a civilian uh, vehicle, coming back home at night, I mean, type deal. But uh, when you go into austere locations, uh, that's that's where the living accommodation uh, changes somewhat. Right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it can change considerably. Uh, yeah. And now, did you notice a, a, a change in attitude or tempo or seriousness uh, in the various countries, say, with, uh, you know, with their various militaries or police in terms of how they um, uh, responded to you and, and the people you worked with? Uh, or was it pretty much, you know, they, they all took it all seriously? You're talking about the uh, U.S. forces? No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, or are you talking about the host nation yes, forces? Yes, that's what I meant, yes. Well, in uh, in a uh, training uh, environment, uh, when I was in the Congo, uh, it was very, very primitive and rudimentary. Uh, it's a poor, extremely poor country, corrupt. Uh, uh, the government's corrupt. The man walking on the street is a crook. Uh, I mean, and... We were there to train uh, a, a, a brigade of officers, and uh, we would give them classroom instruction, and then we would take them out into the field for practical exercises and application of what they were learning in the classroom. And uh, we would fuel their vehicles, get them fueled up, and come out there the next morning, and the fuel would be siphoned out. Hmm. So this is the type of uh, corruption you see in uh, foreign uh, militaries. They're stealing from. Uh, they're, they're taking the stuff they need to do their <laughs> their training or their uh, to improve their war fighting capability because they're poor and uh, they they're not paid anything to 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 mention. Uh, it's just, uh, and, uh, when you train people like that, you, you have to lower a lot of your expectations of what you think you're going to see in a classroom. Uh, the, the, the caliber of the students, uh, is much different than what you would say, see in a Western country or in the United States, uh, so you have to adjust your your instruction accordingly if you're training folks like that. Hmm. So now, is, would you say that in a scenario like that, uh, is that because the people that are in the classroom don't want to be there, or they're just their 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 cultural perspective is just so radically different? Yeah, it's a little bit of some both. Uh, uh, they do have a different cultural cultural aspect, and that's normal. 
you you will have some knuckleheads that don't want to be there, and then you have others that are that generally are interested and want to be there and learn what they can and are very enthusiastic. And uh, it's it's a hodgepodge, uh, hmm. but uh, uh, and you have to adjust your teaching uh, methods according to the culture you're in. In some cultures, if you ask a question in the class and point at someone to answer, uh, or you expect someone to raise their hand, they won't raise their hand because if they answer incorrectly, it's a loss of face. Hmm. So you have to come up with methods to work around those uh, those cultural differences. Uh, okay, so cultural sensitivities are huge then. <clears throat> oh yeah, you have to you have to be aware of uh of uh who your who your uh student is. Uh and and what is that, uh, like the US Army Special Forces, they do uh training of of uh, third world in third world nations all the time. And the first thing they do before they go into a country is they do a country study, and they learn all about the food, the culture, the customs, mm. the religion, and uh, the language. They speak the language. So, so the more of that you're able to identify with and familiarize yourself with, the better you can reach them in the classroom. Okay. Now we're now. Uh, since we're on that, were those things that you attempted to do as well? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I taught uh, Iraqi soldiers in Iraq. Uh, that was in 03 and 04. Uh, uh, we were standing up uh, Iraqi infantry battalions, <clears throat> and my my folks were responsible for training their logistics people so I had to write the doctrine for all of that training. Then I had to run a issue facility uh, for their clothing and their boots that they got when they started conducting their basic training. Hmm. And then when they completed their training as a unit, they were stood up as a as a unit, and they were issued their weapons, their trucks, their radios, which is what my section did also, and they they went out to be taken under the control of an American unit, and they were taken onto the battlefield. Now, so, do, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So they would do a, a a period of training with the American unit. And then they would start conducting patrols and combat operations. Okay. Uh, so it was a, uh, what, a crawl, walk, run type training uh, situation, correct? That's right. Okay. So so uh, me as a logistics guy, <clears throat> you when you're <clears throat> in contracting, it's not just, uh, you're not just working with U.S soldiers. Uh, you can be in a foreign country uh, under a State Department contract doing some type of logistics work for, for the State Department for some program they have, uh, such as uh, uh, police protection or security protection or protecting government buildings or whatever the project may be. Uh, so uh, you're not just with U.S. soldiers or Marines or Air Force or Navy. It's a pretty diverse uh, clientele you may have. Right. And would you say that uh, when you're in a situation like that, from uh, your experiences, that it's uh, it's much more – it's very – I guess the question I'm asking is that when you get to these foreign countries, do you did you get the the impression or did you experience it such that they 
their expectations were far different than ours. They they heard that America or these units or these troops or these people are coming here from America to help them and whatever story they were given. Uh, did you feel that sometimes their expectations and what they asked for and what they wanted was was unjustified and maybe it it went beyond the scope and capability? Yeah, uh, that happens. Uh, they have unrealist, unrealistic expectations, expectations uh based on what they've seen in the newspaper or heard on TV or whatever uh or what they've been told uh uh you have to work through that you have to educate them what they're going to receive the purpose uh why they're receiving that uh training or guidance or whatever you want to call it uh and uh yes uh most or all students have, would have preconceived notions of what to expect. Uh, that's normal, and the, the instructor should expect that. Okay. So, and, and that's probably because their their boss, their captain, their lieutenant, their whoever told them something. You know whether they legitimately believed it or not. Um, but they told them something that wasn't quite true. But but uh, do you think it was more than that? Do you think there was something there? I mean, some folks have likened it or referred to it as uh, uh, getting rich off the fat of America. Well, uh, some of them uh, have a an intention or a desire. Uh, of getting to be friends with an American so they can get to America. Okay. That's in the, uh, that's in the equation also. Hmm. But I have a kind of a different look at that. Uh, I'm a kind of against uh, helping people get green cards and visas to come to the States because if you're in a country uh, that's in the third world category, uh, I think it's fruitless to send someone to the States so they can get a job and send money back to their family. That What they should do is take their knowledge you're giving them and fix their country. Hmm. So there's no requirement for people to uh, run away and uh, live the good life uh, and leave your family members or your friends back in the country to uh, continue. But hmm. that just that's just my opinion that a lot of Americans try to help people get a green card or get a get a visa to the States. Or I'm trying to help somebody out. Well, I look at it a little bit differently. Uh I think they ought to be encouraged to fix their country. Right. By taking the positive aspects of America or Germany or the UK or whatever and try to adopt some of those measures uh into their own uh, government process. Hmm. You know, that's that's a that's actually a good point. I like that. You know, I mean, that's not much different than those of us who say, you know, at some point you guys got to fight your own battle. You got to fix the problems here. Well, and, 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 and the same thing that we're uh, we're addressing here in the states with this uh, illegal immigration. Uh, people people are running from. Uh, Various countries, because of the uh, oppressive regime, like Venezuela or whoever it is, I, I saw this morning where 16 people drowned trying to get out of Venezuela. <clears throat> and there again, when did uh, revolution and rebellion go out of style? Why not stay there and fight for your family and your country and change that regime? Right. Why run away? That doesn't fix anything. It'll ne it'll never be fixed. Wow. You know that 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 that's actually um, a well articulated uh, point. I mean that that's better than I could have put it. But uh, you know, but that's that that says an awful lot of what a lot of us are, are trying to say. You know, uh, you know, guys like me just say, you know, look, you got to take care of it yourself at some point. But that. Um, 
you know, and that's a that's a deep rabbit hole. But I mean, you know, I understand why some people, you know, want to bring them over because that, you know, they feel bad that their family and friends can't be here. They got here, you know, and they want everybody to enjoy the good life. And it's like, well, you know, it could be good there, too, if you guys just stuck around and fixed it instead of running away from your problems. Uh, I mean, we've got issues here in America that people are wringing their hands over and and are, you know, basically sticking their head in the sand um, and, and talking a great story, but not doing anything about it. So, you know, same thing. I mean, if you got a problem, you got to fix it. You got to meet it head on or it'll never get taken care of. Yeah, that's what we did in nineteen uh, in seventeen seventy six. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I had a Congolese uh, officer ask me one day. Uh, he spoke pretty good English. He said uh, he asked me a question. He said, "Mr. Vern, he says, why does my uh, why does my country stay so poor?" I said, well, I'm not an expert, but I can tell you, uh, you need uh, fundamental, fundamentally about four things. First and foremost, you got to have rule of law. If you don't have rule of law, no, no company is going to come here and set up a factory and have it stolen overnight hmm. because there's no police or there's no law and order. Uh, so no one's going to come in your country and invest anything if there's no rule of law right? equally applied. Uh, and you need about two or three other ingredients, like a little bit of capital, hmm. a good education system where people are illiterate, and you need some freedom and liberty. Hmm. And that's what I told him. He kind of looked at me and said, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do you think it was lost on him, or do you think he was, you know, just kind of digesting it and, you know? Well, you never know because a few months later I left. You never know what uh, answering a question or leading by example may have uh, effect, have an effect on someone if you if you're not there to to see what happened. I don't know what happened, what he did with that. Uh, information I gave him. Uh I hope it it settled in somewhere. <laughs> hmm. Right. Yeah, well I think a lot of us do because uh I you know I, I assume a lot of us have had um some similar conversation with people in, in other countries and uh you know depending on where your viewpoint and where you're coming from, but I mean guys like us would you know uh, say something like what you you were telling that fellow. Uh, you, you articulated it better. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's great. Uh, so Vern, I know you've got uh, stuff you need to take care of today, and so so we we can't spend too much longer. Uh, so the folks that are listening, uh, you know, this has been great. I'm glad he made the time, took the time out of his day to do this again. There's an awful lot more I would love to discuss and talk with you about. So, Vern, I'm hoping you'd be willing to come back and do another episode at some point in the future. Well, uh, right offhand, uh, I can't commit to that because uh, I've been, like I told you before, I'm taking care of some medical issues, and we've got a trip scheduled, me and my wife going to Belize uh, for a few months for the winter. Wow. And uh we're going to get out of town for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Well, uh, but I, I'm assuming if, if the if the planets and the stars align properly, uh, you'd be willing to do it. Oh, yeah. Uh, once I'm back in, I get back in here sometime in, I don't know, February, March. I don't know. Whenever, whenever the money runs out, we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, so uh, before we... Uh, put a, a wrap on it is there a um, a golden nugget or a pearl of wisdom or some final thought you'd like to leave the folks with yeah uh if if uh, if 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 a person listening uh desires to move into the contracting world i would advise him to uh, be professional uh uh if you're asked a question, uh, give the give the right answer. Don't give uh, a quick and dirty. Uh, be professional in uh, your demeanor when you're doing your job, and uh, 
set an example to the customer, your your uh, government uh, who's paying the bill, uh, uh, and uh, do the best you can. And uh, I think you'll come out on the other side having uh, having uh, and becoming a very successful contractor. Hmm. That's good advice. Well, thank you, Vern. Uh, so for the folks that are listening, again, uh, my guest for this episode on Oconus, the Contractor's Life, uh, was Vern Messer. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, so with that said, folks, uh, remember to be careful what you wish for. Stay frosty, stay safe. And until next time, keep it real. 